I'm Shona Thompson in for Bill Kelly. Today on the podcast, the impact of tourism on the lifting of the test to return requirement. Bottom line, book early. The latest on the latest variant of COVID-19 and is a fourth dose of the vaccine coming for us all and why. How to talk to your family who may have gone down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And remember, they may think you've gone down your own rabbit hole. And indicators of the impact of sanctions on the Russian economy. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As you've been hearing in the news this morning, the border rules right now are about to change. As it stands now, fully vaccinated travelers are required to show a proof of a health professional administered negative rapid antigen test taken ahead of a scheduled flight or crossing uh, at a land border. Now, that is likely to change this morning when the Canadian government is expected to announce the lifting of that measure. That is music to the ears of Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati and other border town mayors. We get upwards of 14 million people a year. 50% of the revenue would typically come from the U.S. That has been turned right off for the last two years. So by removing that restriction, that would absolutely start the trickle and hopefully eventually a free flow of Americans visiting us here once again. Joining us now to talk more about this is Frederick Demanche, who is director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University. Good morning and thank you for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. What is your take on this change and how it's going to impact tourism? It's big news indeed. You know, for the past few years, couple of years, you know, there have been some very strong restrictions about traveling. And this is the last restrictions, really. The other one is still, you know, being vaccinated to travel within Canada. As you know, this is still maintained. But um, that uh, changing the the test requirement is enormous for the industry because it, it will open the gate for international travelers to come back to Canada. And as we stand now, we are down about 90% of international travel traffic as compared to where we were two years ago. So it's very, very significant and it gives uh, a lot of hope for, for the industry, which, as you know, has been struggling uh, dramatically for the past two years. It's been the hardest hit sector. Well, one of the things I was thinking when I first heard that this change is going to be coming up um, was that there would be a flood of travel to make sure you get that trip in just in case the situation changes again. It may change again. We are still in a pandemic. And when you look at the situation in some other countries like like uh, Hong Kong, for example, or New Zealand, you know, people uh, still have to be careful. You know, we still have to be worried about what's happening around the world. So I would recommend traveling. Yes, if you can uh, take that trip south if you want to go and, and uh, in, enjoy the sun for, for the moment. But uh, keep wearing a mask for sure, because you never know what's going to happen. Now, it's anticipated that this change is going to come into effect on April the 1st. How do tourism operators plan not only for an influx of travelers, but also for the longer term in case things change again? So on the one hand, it's very good news to see the, the, the gates opening, as you said. On the other hand, the concern is that we still suffer from um, a, a labor gap, as we call it. You know, people have left the industry. A lot of operators have been suffering from not having enough employees and not having enough qualified employees. And that's going to be the challenge in the next few months is making sure that we're able to uh, to bring back some of the talent in the operating room, if I may say, uh, to serve the, the customers, to serve the tourists with the, the type of quality that they will expect from us. Well, one of the things that we saw in Ontario last summer when things opened up a bit was that a lot of the camps and campgrounds and, uh, and other hotels and resorts, so certainly in Ontario, they really couldn't uh, catch up with the, the scramble because it was like all of a sudden things were open again. It is difficult, and that is, that's what has been hurting our industry more than anything else. You know, it's the up and down and the up and down, and, and people have left. Uh, that's sad to say, but it is true. Uh, a lot of employees have left the sector. They have found jobs in some other uh, type of industries, and, and they're keeping those jobs with good reason because of the uncertainty that remains with respect to Omicron, with respect to, you know, future variant, possibly with respect to the war in Ukraine. So there is a lot of factors that are still... Uh, uh, you know, difficult for people to to uh, understand or to ascertain whether or not working in hospitality and tourism will be a stable situation. So that remains a big challenge for all of us. Well, the stability of it, and you could be coming into contact with people from all parts of the world. So there are certain risk factors that they might want to take into consideration as well. 
that's another risk factor indeed. So um, it's it's up to the operators, you know, to be careful. That's one thing that the industry has done very, very well for the past two years, whether you're talking about the hotels or the airlines or, or, or the restaurants. They have implemented some safety measures that, that were very careful. I believe it's very safe to fly in, a, in, a, in an airplane. I believe it's very safe to be in a hotel. Uh, there are lots of safety measures, uh, hygiene measures that, that make it even safer now than it was two years ago, I suppose. So, but it's all about being in a comfort zone. It's all about people assessing the risk, uh, continuing to wear a mask. If they feel comfortable with a mask, of course, I would recommend this. But, uh, um, you know, traveling is such a wonderful thing. It's such an important thing for all of us. You know, we need to see our friends and family. We need to, to relax. We need to, to, to get away from, from this situation we've been in for the past two years. So uh, that's also good for uh, respective mental health to travel and to see something else, isn't it? Well, absolutely. What kind of pricing can travelers expect? Because I've seen a lot of bargain basement prices right now because people were less interested in travel. But when this restriction is lifted, everyone's expecting that travel is going to increase dramatically. And with that comes the law of supply and demand. Absolutely. So with low demand, as we have seen in the past few months, you know, prices went down because the operators were calling us on customers and giving them some good deals, you know, to to give them an incentive, a financial incentive to travel. Now that there is demand, uh, you know, and now that we're approaching a higher season, we're going into spring, we're going into summer, and that's when people are booking right now for the summer season, prices are likely to go up. On top of this, look at the uh, uh, jet fuel situation. The price of jet fuel is more expensive for the airlines. The price of gasoline is more expensive to, to fill up your car as well. So all of this will contribute to higher vacation. On the other hand, uh, we are very motivated to travel, I think. Uh, there is definitely a pent-up demand. And people, to tell you the truth, have not spent much money uh, in the past two years on traveling. So there is a budget there that, that where people may have saved some money to travel and they will be willing to spend a little bit more money. Well, your point about jet fuel, I think, is really well taken because what we've been hearing um, over the last several days certainly is that you should, if you're thinking about traveling by air, buy your tickets now because with the impact on uh, jet fuel refining from oil and the uh, the problem of the war between uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the cutoff of the Russian economy, it actually was responsible for at least some of the um, jet fuel production. So the price of jet fuel is only going to increase. It's very likely to increase. It, it has increased actually already in the past few months. Um, you know, the, the effect may have been m- mitigated because some of the airlines bought some uh, jet fuel at prices uh, six months ago, for example, or, or, or three months ago, and, and they've bought some stocks, you know, for the for the next six months or, or, or nine months. So depending on the airlines, depending on how they have made some choices, strategic choices about buying jet fuel, uh, you might see some, some differences in price. Think all also about the cost of traveling that may be increasing for some of us who may want to go to Asia. Why? Because the trips will be longer. We cannot fly over Russia anymore. So if you want to go from Canada or North America to Asia, you'll have to go around Russia. It will take two hours more to fly, and that will mean more expensive flights as well. As you mentioned, the pandemic has been uh, really, really tough on the tourism sector. Um, Can you give us an idea, a perspective of just how difficult it's been? For the travel and tourism sector, it's been really dramatic. It was the first hit industry with all the um, the restrictions. Remember that you know Canadians were asked not to travel abroad. Uh, foreign travelers were asked not to travel to Canada as well. That was the same situation in many countries around the world. So it's been very, very difficult for the sector. Um, it's unfortunate to say, but you know many operators have actually had to close. And and those who survived only survived because of the financial aid that was provided by the government. So that's another threat uh, that is going on right now. The the government said that they would uh, slowly suppress that financial aid that they implemented last uh, fall. Um, Is it too early? That's what the the lobbyists are doing right now, is telling the government, look, you know, you, you need to help us a bit further because we won't be able to survive anymore. Is there any indication of how long it might take the industry to recover and what impact that's going to have on prices charged to travelers? 
Well, you know, pricing is always a matter of supply and demand, as you said earlier. So uh, you, you want to be smart when pricing. You cannot price too expensive because people are not going to be traveling. So you, you want to price in a way that you're able to make some money and at the same time being able to be attractive to, to, to the customers. But um, that being said, it will take a lot of time for, for those companies to replenish their, their coffers. You know, it may take a lot of time to, to come back to pre-pandemic levels of financial health um, that the industry was seeing. So um, will we come back to that level? Uh, I don't know, because we continue to have those threats, you know, whether it's the, the, the virus, whether it's the war and the jet fuel prices. Um, you know, it's we are in for the long run, so we have to be patient. Uh, another issue I wanted to get your opinion on, we only have a couple of minutes left, um, and it's something that I was hearing about uh, this morning, actually, and that's a problem people are having with getting their passports renewed in time to be able to travel. Service Canada is by appointment only. Well, there are some that are taking walk-ins, but that wait can be very, very long, and that's uh, one of those details people might forget until it's almost too late. It, it's true because for the past two years, you know, we, we haven't been traveling. So we put that passport, you know, somewhere we forgot about it. And now that we want to travel again, we realize that the expiration date is, is less than six months away or it's already passed and, and it's going to be uh, difficult. So um, the alternative, obviously, is to travel in Canada and, and that will be welcome for the industry as well. So I think the industry is still encouraging people to travel within Canada, domestic travel, because it's the right thing to do if you want to help the hospitality sector. I'm wondering if there's been any discussion at all about extending the life of your passport because by government order, we haven't been able to travel outside of the country. Yeah, I'm not sure that's so easy. <laughs> it, it would, you know, it would be it would be very nice to say, oh, let's extend by six months, you know, just like this because of the pandemic. I don't think that's going to happen. So unfortunately, we're going to have to to line up at at uh, Service Canada and to extend the, the passport. But there will be a line, so it will take time. Well, I wanted to thank you for your time and your insights on this issue, uh, because it is going to change. And um, I think you've given people a lot to think about, particularly if they're thinking about traveling by plane. Make that reservation in quickly. Frederick Demanche is the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A fourth dose of the vaccine is something that was recommended for those who are in care home settings and those who are immunocompromised. But what about the rest of us? Now, some people were rolling their eyes at the prospect of a third dose. Now, a fourth dose is being talked about. Across Canada, the latest stats I could find suggest that the rate of full vaccination, that's three doses, 18 and over, is only running at about 56 percent. One dose, really high. It's up at almost 90 percent. But from one dose to three, well, the rate obviously drops off dramatically. And are we going to get enough people to the fourth fourth dose? Uh, a lot of people are wondering about the number of shots we need and what the, that the immunity seems to wane pretty quickly, necessitating another shot. So let's find out a little bit more about this. Joining us on the line is Dr. Don Bodish, who's a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University. She's also the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with the DeGroote School, or the DeGroote Institute, rather, for Infectious Disease Research. That is a very long business card you must have. <laughs> you could just have said, this is Dawn. She's going to talk. Okay, <laughs> this is Dawn. She's going to talk. Um, what about that fourth dose and for the rest of us? Is it something we should be considering? Yeah, so unfortunately, Omicron really changed the game for us in a big way. And let's, if you don't mind, let's just step back a couple of steps, first of all. Sure. If you remember, if you've got kids or, or maybe even you've got some adult vaccines like HPV or hepatitis B, vaccines usually come in threes. So you probably took your kids to the doctor when they were about three months, six months, nine months, or for other vaccines, it would have been six months, 12 months and five years, et cetera, et cetera. And vaccine dosing schedules usually come in threes. And that's because that seems to be the magic number that really helps cement the memory of the immune response to come back a bit later. So when the vaccines first came out, we wanted to get them out as quickly as we were as we could to reduce the number of infections. But most of us were expecting that that we wouldn't get to the permanence 
that we really need without at least three doses. And I, I, that was not communicated very well, I think, to the general public. Uh, and in fact, because we, you know, we never had an infinite supply of these vaccines, we were really prioritizing who even got the third doses. It was immunocompromised people and long-term care folks. And, and so people really interpret that as meaning, as a healthy person, I don't need a second dose. Um, only sick people need a, or a third dose, rather. Only uh, sick people need a third dose. And that really was not very helpful messaging. So the third dose is no surprise. What is a little bit surprising is that the requirement for the fourth dose is going to be needed for most of us. And honestly, that comes in the large part from the fact that the Omicron variant is an extremely what we call immune evasive variant, meaning that even if you have a really good immune response, it could still sneak under that and make make you sick. And so what we found after we administered the third doses for the general population is that there was this wonderful period where people were, even if they were getting sick, very, very minor, not having to take a lot of time off work, lots of asymptomatic infections. And that's because their antibody levels were sky high right after that third dose. But the antibody levels fall. And because this this virus, this variant is particularly sneaky at getting under those low levels, it looks like a fourth dose is probably going to be required to give us that period of protection again. Well, I know. And uh, one of the things you might be a little sick and tired of hearing is people saying, well, the science keeps changing. Well, the science evolves because the virus evolves. Correct. Correct. You know, I, I have to remind myself every once in a while, it's not us who's in charge here, it's the virus. You know, if, if there's an, this Omicron variant, I am bitter because it ruined my Christmas. <laughs> I was hoping to have my entire vaccinated family of 21 people over for the holidays. You know, I was really looking forward to that. But I am not in charge. The virus is in charge. And so the fact that we've got this really problematic uh, variant uh, is means that we're going to have to make some compromises. I was hoping that the vaccine would protect us for long enough to get the clinical trials on the Omicron-specific boosters, which will probably come out in the summer. Uh, but I just don't think we've got that kind of time. So as we we sort of hit uh, a level where there's about, you know, about 2,000 infections a day in Ontario, which is frankly still way too high, um, if that starts rising, I think we'll start thinking about uh, fourth doses. Of course, as you very rightly pointed out, we really should get everyone their third dose, and that'll give us as a community, as a population, as a province, a little bit longer before we have to worry about fourth doses. Well, you know, I think you were suggesting or saying that the uh, the formulation for the fourth dose mm-hmm. is going to be different than the third dose, so we so need to go through that progress? Right now, no. Okay. As of right now, those new vaccines are not ready yet, and uh, although I, I was pleased I got to go see a WHO seminar where people were showing some of the preliminary results, and it looked really promising. And uh, so there is definitely this idea that if we could make an Omicron-specific one, we'd get even better protection and we wouldn't have to worry about coming back every six months or whatever the time period is going to be for more doses. Um, so, so that is on the way, but Omicron is here now. And as we start lifting mask rules, as people start congregating more, as St. Patrick's Day leads to a little a bit of uh, festivities, we can expect that we'll see a rise in cases and when those get to a certain point, we're going to have to start thinking about a fourth dose to help get them back down under control again. Well, and, you know, with those St. Patrick's Day festivities, um, great decision making doesn't usually come with festivities. Yeah. And we saw, it's you know, this two week lag after in 2020, it was after Mother's Day. You know, we were all supposed to stay apart, but who can stay away from mom on Mother's Day? Two weeks later, there was an increase in infections in mother aged women <laughs> or mother aged people. And then we saw there was a Canada Day spike and things like that. So we are this is an incredibly infectious virus. And uh, young people are uh, the ones who are getting the most infections right now, and they're the ones who tend to be out and celebrating. So, um, you know, if you can keep those celebrations small, if you can keep do them outdoors, these things would all help. Is there any way, and you may not have the answer to this, which is perfectly understandable, but is there any way, like we've been hearing over and over again, people saying things like, I am done with COVID. Mm. I am done with these restrictions. I am done with getting shots every few months, Um, but it's not done with us. Um, So how do we get people who still need a second, a third dose before they get a fourth dose? How do we get those rates of vaccination up? 
I think one of the things that hasn't been very well communicated is we focus so heavily on hospitalizations and deaths. We have not focused on all the other ways that COVID can ruin your life. So having a COVID infection, even if it's not serious enough to land you in hospital, can have serious long-term health issues. Cardiac complications are sky high in people who've had COVID, even if they don't end up in the in, in the hospital. Long COVID is a debilitating and really upsetting uh, disease that tends to affect working age people who are healthy and don't have a lot of comorbidities. Very problematic. So you may be done with a virus, but the virus is not done with us. And keeping up with those vaccines, definitely getting the third shot is going to be a huge protector of your health for years to come. We've all got people who need us, <laughs> whether you're a, a child and you've got parents to take care of, or you're a parent with children, or you're a member of your community. And to, to take care of uh, those people, you need to be in the best health you can be in. So that third dose is going to help you keep that health. Uh, it's inevitable the way Omicron spreads that we're all going to get it. So you've got two choices. You've got the choice of not being up to date on your vaccines and letting it possibly make you sick or give you uh, permanent health damage or even, have, God forbid, end up in the hospital. Or you can be fully vaccinated, reduce those risks and have the life that we all want and have a little bit more of your pre-pandemic life back. Well, and the other thing is, we're only two years into this pandemic mm-hmm. and long-haul symptoms, we're just starting to understand. Absolutely. And, you know, it is at St. Joe's Hospital where I, I, uh, I have an office. We have a long uh, COVID clinic for people who are suffering from long COVID. And it is so upsetting to see young, healthy people in their prime, you know, parents who can't take care of their kids, people who can't work. And it's a new syndrome. You know, we've never seen anything like it before. So all we can help do is manage symptoms. And a lot of our our patients may get good advice on how to manage those symptoms or maybe some respiratory therapy or some other treatments, but it's not a cure. And prevention really is the best medicine for, for long COVID. And having three doses has been shown to provide more protection than two doses. So I'd really encourage everyone to get out and do that. Well, and one of the things that I've just been hearing about, even though children by and large do not seem to be as severely impacted uh, with COVID as as adults and and older adults seem to be, one of the long-haul symptoms I'm starting to hear about is uh, a greater tendency towards diabetes in children. Yes, that's right. So it can trigger this autoimmune reaction, which can lead to diabetes. And some kids do, the estimates now are between 1% to 8%, do have something that looks like long COVID. Lots of tummy issues, gastrointestinal issues are associated with kids. And what's also been kind of upsetting about the Omicron wave is Omicron's moved a little bit more to the upper respiratory tract. So if you've got a friend or family member who's had it, they might have complained about the congestion. So it stays sort of high instead of going to the lungs in adults. But in kids, being up high in the upper respiratory tract is a real problem. Babies can be croupy. It can trigger asthma exacerbations in in asthmatic kids. So Omicron's actually led to more hospitalizations and health issues with children than than the previous variants because they don't do very well with upper respiratory tract uh, infections. So, you know, getting kids, uh, I'm, you know, really supportive of what the Hamilton Wentworth School Board is trying to do about keeping masks for a little bit longer. Uh, and, you know, t- getting your kid, if they're old enough to be vaccinated, is going to be incredibly helpful for that. We're speaking with Dr. Don Bodish, who is with both McMaster University as well as St. Joe's and is the with the Canadian Research Chair in Aging and Immunity at uh, the DeGroote Institute for Infectious Diseases. The WHO is reporting an increase in COVID-19 cases in other parts of the world, um, and they're saying that this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're expecting to hear more about the BA2 variant of Omicron a little later today from the Ontario Science Advisory Table. What do we know about BA2 at this point and how much of a concern should it be? BA2 is uh, like the original Omicron, except more contagious, believe it or not, which is hard to believe. It's, uh, it's really worrisome. So it's creeping up in, our, in the amount that we have in Ontario. Uh, and there's still lots and lots of people for this virus to infect. You know, it feels like everyone's had COVID or everyone's been vaccinated. Um, but we know that it can it can sneak under the immune responses of older adults. It can sneak under the immune responses of people who aren't freshly vaccinated or have only had two doses. So it's even more contagious. And in fact, many countries, Denmark, the UK, uh, many European countries that have sort of lifted restrictions just as BA2 entered the population 
saw a steep increase in infections. So we are going to still need to be pragmatic and cautious about the decisions we make to help make sure that we don't have the spread of this because none of us want another peak like we just went through. That was incredibly exhausting for the healthcare system. And frankly, so many people have had delayed care for non-COVID related things that we really need to have a catch-up period where we're getting people back and getting them into the care that they need. So uh, we really don't want, uh, BA2 is here. Uh, the question will become, will we be like those other countries that have lifted restrictions and see a sharp increase or will we be able to manage it? And I am happy to see that many Ontarians are saying, you know, I'm going to keep my mask on. I'm going to keep myself protected even after the restrictions are listed, lifted. I'm going to, you know, try to meet my friends outside. The weather, if it would only uh, warm up a little bit faster would help make socialization easier because we could eat on patios and, and, and visit our friends and family that way. So I think the time uh, to lift all cautions is not here uh, because BA2 is a real and present threat. Well, and I'm hoping that uh, those who are ready to take off their masks and live without them have some patience with those of us who are not ready to do that yes. at this point. Yes. I mean, the best advice is always just be kind. You know, that's, it, it does you for whatever your situation you're in. So, you know, we have to accept the fact that, unfortunately, these masks have become a real symbol of a divisiveness in our, our society. But you don't get to know if somebody's got an immunocompromising condition, if they're caring for a loved one who's vulnerable, or if, frankly, they've just been scarred by the psychology of this entire pandemic and don't feel safe going out. So I think we just have to be really respectful of what people's personal decisions are. And, and you know, if someone were to say to me, um, I know I will be wearing my mask, but if someone said, you know, I don't feel comfortable socializing outside without a mask on, I'd be more than happy to put that on to make them comfortable. I think we just have to be the best neighbors, the best people and the best friends and community members that we can be in this transition time. Well, I, I wanted to expand a little bit on something that you said earlier about how the BA2 mm-hmm. uh, variant is even more contagious than Omicron. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are losing a frame of reference for what even more contagious actually means. Yes. Well, you know, it, when the first uh, coronavirus came out, it was the first version way back when in 2020, one virus infected maybe two to three people and it was pretty uneven. So some people would infect lots of people, but most people wouldn't infect anybody. So you could even have, you know, somebody come home with uh, the original version of the coronavirus in your house and not have all your household members get sick, even in the pre-vaccine era. So that it was sort of more contagious than influenza, about as contagious as the common cold. Then we've moved up to the Omicron BA1 and BA2 variants, which are all are pretty much, we think, as contagious as measles, which is the most contagious <laughs> infectious disease uh, we had prior to that, where you can be standing meters away from somebody. You can uh, just share the same air as somebody and get infected. Passing them in a hallway and breathing in the same air is, is sufficient to get infected. So that was a huge difference. And that's why at that time we, when Omicron came, we said, you've got to step up your mask. You need to be breathing through the mask, not around the mask, because even breathing in that room air, if you have a gaping mask, it could mean an infection. So that really was a game changer with regard to what kind of masks we should be wearing and and how we need to think about socializing and spending time indoors. You know, in those common cold infectious disease days, staying two meters apart was was pretty good and you could you could do that but now really you just have to think about sharing the air as being um i use the example of if you know if you burn the toast in your house and that smell of burnt toast takes a while to clear out and so even if you were to leave the house and come back you would still smell that burnt toast smell and and that's the exact same thing with omicron it stays in the air and you can breathe in that same air from from somebody who's been infected and been in the same space Don, we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, I wanted to ask you about the new modelling that is expected around noon today Mm -hmm. from the Ontario Science Advisory Table. Any indications of what it might include? Yeah, so we're definitely going to be thinking about two major things. One, following the vaccine efficacy really, really closely, uh, because when Omicron came, two doses was not sufficient to prevent um, uh, symptomatic infection, but was from death. We got the third doses in, we saw an increase, but we're already starting to see waning in people who had those vaccines really, really early. Uh, We're also going to be having a good news story about long-term care residents, which the deaths were just decimating in the first two waves, but are actually, uh, because they've had fourth doses, dying less 
than than people of the same age in the in the general community. So that's a good news story. And then, of course, we'll be making predictions about BA2, what it's going to do for hospitalizations, what it's going to do for spread. And we're also hoping to see some some advice or some impact about the schools and what we can expect for young kids in the next little while. Well, thank you very much. We'll certainly keep an ear out uh, for those indicators and what else the Ontario Science Advisory Table may have. Don, thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure. Stay safe. Dr. Bodish is a professor with McMaster University. She's also with the DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that I've been doing in trying to figure out what is really going on in Russia due to the invasion of Ukraine is look for other indicators, not what's being said on Twitter, even from sources that I consider reliable. Uh, it's even more difficult with the information blackout in Russia. Almost no information is coming out of the country, even less is getting in. So when I saw a story yesterday that Russia was in danger of defaulting on government bond payments, according to financial rating agencies, that was something that I took note of. Here to tell us more is Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Good morning. Good morning, Shona. I'm really glad to be able to speak with you today. My pleasure. My pleasure. I agree with you, by the way. Um, in a situation like this, the fog of war, as it's sometimes called, and we're not literally in war, but our surrounding the, the war is the fog of war, which is all the in- disinformation, false information, etc. And uh, like you, I, I um, gravitate. Uh, I, I certainly, no offense to anybody who uses Twitter or follows Twitter or social media, but that, that is not my source of data. Uh, I uh, look to... Um, Things like um, market data. What is the ruble doing? Because that's, that's, that's real, very, very real. And the ruble is collapsing like a stone. And then I look at things by decision makers, you know, uh, Lloyd's of London, which is the association of uh, all the insurance companies or most of the insurance companies of the world, and what they're doing. And they're saying, well, we refuse to insure any ships going into Russian ports. So that, that's real hard data. And then the large shipping companies are saying, we are not sending any Russian ships into Russian ports uh, to deliver anything. So that that's hard data. These are actual decision makers who actually are making decisions about stuff they own and their relationship with with uh, Russia. And then we look at the default, and we look at the decision by the uh, U.S. and allies to freeze the foreign reserves of the bank of the central bank of Russia. Foreign reserves are essentially U.S. dollars held abroad and uh, euros. And and so you look at this kind of data, and you can build up a composite, I think, understanding of what's going on in Russia and in terms of the economy in Russia. And, and I think it's, um, it's, getting, it's going from bad to worse. Um, the uh, finance minister of Russia has said publicly that they're on the edge of default, uh, can't access their foreign reserves. Um, uh, companies in Russia can't get product in because they can't pay their suppliers because of the sanctions. And even if they could pay their suppliers, the ships aren't going to the ports. And even if the ships could go to the ports, they can't get insurance. So when you look at all of this accumulation of hard data, hard information, um, you you start to realize, gee whiz, um, even though we're not there on the ground, uh, things are going to get grim because, like any modern economy, and there are somewhat. You know, I've been to Russia. I've been to Moscow. Um, it's a. It's not as 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 uh, affluent or as wealthy as Canada or the states. But it's a, you know in the big cities, they're they're modern economies, and they have grocery stores and all the stores that you go shopping at. And then you realize, well, wait a minute. No store, no chain of stores has a a year of inventory on hand. That that, that isn't how business works anywhere. You know, you've got, you know, depending on the industry, um, but 30 days of inventory in the, in the distribution centers, the warehouses, on the trucks, in the back rooms of the grocery stores and so forth. You maybe got four, five, six weeks of, uh, of inventory. And, and given this data, just given these announcements by these decision makers like shipping companies, that there almost nothing is going in now uh, to replenish the inventory. What that tells me is that stores are going to be running down and running out of product very, very soon. And I'm not giving an exact date because I don't know the specific, you know, uh, uh, inventory on hand of store A versus B, etc. But they are going to run out of inventory. 
and uh, because of the financial stra- uh, sanctions, because of the restrictions on the, for- the central bank of Russia, because the trucks aren't go- the, the the ships aren't going in, and so on and so forth. And of course, the ruble is is our thermometer of this, showing it's collapsing. And the stock market is closed for a very good reason. Uh, the Russian government will not allow it to open because then people become realize how much wealth has been destroyed by the invasion because the share prices have collapsed. Those few Russian companies that are listed on the London Stock Exchange in London, UK, have gone down unbelievably, 90-95%. So the point being is the sanctions are impacting. They're not impacting, obviously, as quickly as the war is. I mean, you, I don't mean to be at all simplistic here or facetious. You drop a bomb and the you know, and the effect is almost instantaneous. You know, you see a building blown up and people killed. Uh, the sanctions are slow motion. They take place over, you know, several weeks while the inventory is being used up. But I am suggesting very clearly that things are going to become very, very grim in Russia very soon. And indeed, every uh, serious forecaster that's looking at this, including the IMF, uh, are suggesting a GDP decline of anywhere from 10 to 15 percent. Some are saying 20 percent. These are just numbers, to maybe to most people, but just to give you a comparator, in the Great Depression in the 1930s, Canada's GDP declined by 30 percent. So about a third of the economy vanished. While Russia's, they're already or soon are going to be very, very soon in a very deep recession. And then the question is, will it be, move into or uh, uh, evolve into a full-on depression? So I think that's, their, that, that's sort of the range of possibilities, and it's going to get very, very tough with, with serious shortages over the next one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Well, yeah, because uh, Putin may have been able, and his government may have been able to do a bit of a shell game in terms of, um, as you were suggesting, the inventory um, in in a lot of stores, a lot of businesses. They might be able to pull off a shell game for a while, but it can't be sustained because nothing is coming in. Exactly. And, you know, people think of, you know, these dictators as they're all-powerful, but (laughs) even a dictator can't, they're not magicians. They can't just go abracadabra, I command that the warehouses across Russia be filled with products for the stores. I mean, it just doesn't work like that in any economy anywhere in the world. You know, you have to have trucks or, or, or ships coming in with lots and lots of stuff, whether they're TV sets or their groceries or, bill or food, whatever. And right now, uh, the, the Russian economy has been surrounded, uh, uh, digitally speaking, by these sanctions, and it's even worse than the sanctions. The one quick point I want to bring out that's very important is it's not just the sanctions imposed by the Western, let's call it, coalition, Canada, U.S., uh, EU, and so forth. The, uh, and hi- historically, sanctions were state to state. So a bunch of countries declared sanctions against South Africa, and, and they were very effective in that context. What's happening, what we're witnessing now, it's unprecedented. Because of social media and the social mobilization of millions of ordinary people around the world, people are individually boycotting and, and sanctioning, if you will. And, and the Russian, uh, for example, has been widely reported in Reuters and Bloomberg, the Russian uh, uh, Gazprom, which is a huge oil company, is having a huge, a very difficult time trying to sell their oil because even though the oil is not sanctioned, it was exempt from the sanctions, oil and natural gas, because Europe depends on it, they're having an awful time selling it, and they're having to discount it very deeply to move the product because nobody wants to be seen to be associating or having commercial relations with this pariah state because their brand has become so toxic. And, and so this is going to impact. That's why over 300 corporations have left, uh, Western corporations, have pulled out of Russia. And just ri- they've essentially written off their investments. They've pulled out their people, their capital. I'm, when I say pulled out their capital, they're not investing any more uh, cap- foreign capital in Russia. And their expertise is leaving. And this is going to have a knock-on, a, a delayed reaction, because Russia is very dependent on imported capital and imported expertise. So, you know, for right now, they can't get any spare parts for any of the Boeing or Airbus because both Boeing and Airbus have already announced they will not ship spare parts. And the Russian government went to the Chinese government and said, well, will you give us spare parts for these planes? And they said no. So very soon, their fleet of planes 
are going to be grounded. And Russia's a very large country. It's almost twice the, we're five and a half time zones. Russia's 11 time zones. And, and so it's, they, they are as dependent on air travel in Russia as we are in Canada because we're a big, long country as well. So there's, it's just going to get worse and worse in, in Russia as, as we go on. And I don't mean in five or 10 or 20 years. I'm talking in the next days and weeks. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Well, let's talk a little bit about what some of the long-term impacts of this might be on the Russian economy. I mean, we want them to get out of Ukraine right now, right. but but this is going to have a ripple effect. It's going to be uh, unbelievable. In fact, one of the oligarchs, uh, in fact, he's the wealthiest oligarch in all Russia. So that's their Russian word for billionaire. An oligarch, when people hear that word, it just means billionaire or a multi-billionaire. The wealthiest oligarch or wealthiest billionaire in Russia uh, publicly said he's very, very worried that they're going back to 1917. That was the year of the communist revolution, and when they expropriated all private property, and everything was expropriated. I mean, literally everything. And and so they, as you can guess, the poverty was just unbelievable for a very, very long time to come. And um, there's only a few countries in the world that have gone that road. One of them is North Korea, which is incredibly poor. There's no private property in, in North Korea, and they trade with almost nobody. So the fancy academic word is autarky. Autarky just means you don't trade with anybody in the world. And the very few countries that are like that are unbelievably, unimaginably poor, as one can guess. Well, what's, what's going to happen is with foreign capital not going in, and it's not going I don't think it's going to go back the day after there's finally a peace agreement. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that eventually a peace agreement will be negotiated. Maybe I'm wrong, but let's work on that assumption. The day after, or the week after, or the month after, foreign capital is not going to be flooding back into Russia because the, you know, the images, the horrific, horrible atrocities of, you know, bombing children's hospitals and blowing up, uh, killing, murdering uh, children and pregnant women. I mean, it's just so horrible that uh, Russia is going to be, and some of the oligarchs have actually said this, that Russia is going to be uh, excluded from the world global financial trading system for years and years and years to come. I'm sure they'll be out of the, the global system for at least 10 years. And what that tells me then is that, that the poverty, uh, the deprivation is going to be uh, massive. They're going back to the days of the Soviet Union. Where and, and, and during those times, and I was in uh, uh, Moscow because I taught there uh, a couple of times. I was in Ki- Kiev uh, uh, throughout the 90s. Uh, I taught there over 30 times. And uh, these countries, were, even after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the transformation to a market economy, were radically less affluent than Canada. Before the invasion, Russian average income was 10000 per person per year, expressed in U.S. dollars, converted into U.S. dollars, because so, we all understand U.S. dollars. Canada is about 50000 In other words, Canada is about five times wealthier per person of annual income, the stuff we use to buy groceries and all the things we buy with our food, our, our salaries. And Ukraine was even uh, poorer than that. And, and, so, and that was with all kinds of Western corporations in there investing large amounts of money in many, many different industries because they don't have a lot of foreign capital. They don't have a lot of capital, and they don't have a lot of technology. They've always been dependent on foreign imports of technology, everything in the oil and gas industry, automobiles, computers, you name it. So this is gone. This is gone. I mean, just imagine if all the corporations that are foreign in Canada pulled out tomorrow morning. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just unthinkable. And, and, uh, and so they're going to be looking at 10 years or maybe 20 years, depending on the leadership that follows out of this eventually, whether they become a more um, reformed uh, country and, and become, join the, the community of nations. If they don't, they're going to continue to be a pariah, which means in plain English there won't be the hundreds of billions of dollars that they need to invest in that vast country. And they're going to be a very, very poor country with a very poor, low standard of living for many, many years to come. Well, I think uh, one of the things that you just said that is going to resonate in my mind, certainly, is that uh, whatever the administration is that co- that takes over Russia and runs it for the next 10 years, whoever that might be, I think Putin's gamble really is going to come back to haunt him. 
I, I completely agree with you. The, it's only just starting to dawn on ordinary people, and yes, they don't have any power because it is an authoritarian dictatorship. But at the same time, you know, there's 144 million people in Russia, and and when people become desperate, desperate people do desperate things. Absolutely. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your insight on this. My pleasure. Thank you. Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, I don't know if this has happened in your family, but sadly, it has happened in mine. A family member who's gone down a rabbit hole and popped up their heads with something, well, some very strange ideas. And when you talk to them, you tend to get anger instead of actual reason. So that brought me to this question. If a person can be deprogrammed from a cult, can they be deprogrammed from what they read and believe from the Internet? To help us wade through that question is Steve Jordans, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. Good morning and thank you for joining me. Good morning, Shauna. Great to be with you. <laughs> I really am asking just for some free advice. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm in the same boat, just so you know, so I, I need to advise myself. <laughs> can you reasonably talk to a family member about some of the stuff they've come to believe off the net and help them out of the uh, rabbit hole? Yeah, I, I've come to the opinion, no, and you shouldn't try. Um, I, I've certainly tried, and it sounds like you have uh, as well. And anybody who has tried has probably left that interaction feeling like, okay, we're both just deeper in our respective sides, and we've just shared a whole lot of negative emotions with each with one another. Uh, and, and so literally, it's it's like the two sides see the world so differently that there just doesn't seem to be an ability to kind of, you know, chip away at, at one another's arguments. It, it just goes from bad to worse. Uh, and so I don't think that's the right approach to take it head on. Well, and why is it, it seems like, even if you ask in as most reasonable way as you can formulate uh, yeah. a question about what their beliefs are and how they came to them, you get strong emotion, you get anger first. Well, because that's where, where it comes from. So I, I like to always highlight that we're kind of two people in one, every one of us. We have the most primitive part of our brain. It's called the limbic system. That's where all our emotions reside, our habits, our instincts. And then we have the new kid in town, which is our frontal lobes. And that's where our rational structured thought comes from. Um, a lot of the people are pulled down these rabbit holes by their emotions. They are convinced that there's some real danger, there's some real threat. Uh, that There's a part of our brain that's just looking for danger and threat all the time. It's called the amygdala. When it senses us, senses it, it gets us into that fight or flight kind of mode. And that's where a lot of these people are. They haven't gotten where they are because of a set of rational um, things. There, there's always uh, a guise of rationality around the stories, but the real heart of, of what gets them is that emotional manipulation that they're actually experiencing. Um, and that's why they quickly go to that emotional place and, and not the rational one. Well, um, in my case, I don't know what the premise was in your family, but in my case, I've had some family members who stated and posted things on the internet about, you know, yeah. don't listen to news. Yeah. I'm going to wind yeah. up taking that a little personally, and it will take every <laughs> fiber of my being to try to be rational about that. I mean, that is the first, like when we think of, I'll use the word cult, I, I don't necessarily want to apply that full 100% in this case, but there's certainly a whole lot of overlap. And one of the first things that almost any cult will do is say, your information must come from us. Don't trust any other source of information. And, you know, we've seen that on a scale here where, yes, it's certainly reporters. Don't trust reporters. They're in on it. So too are medical people. So too are politicians. Um, so too are literally anybody that holds any sort of sway. And, and there's such an eagerness to say, you know, if we take reporters... I've seen reporters uh, going through training and they're all about learning how to tell the facts and, and express the facts and to wholesale just say, no, no, they're all in on it. That's what strikes us all as being just absurd. That's the starting point. That's sort of what you need to, uh, to hold all of these other beliefs. You have to reject the whole world of reality. And that's what makes it impossible to argue because we don't have common facts that we both agree on. And if we can't start there, if there's no foothold in reality, then rational thought just kind of disappears. Um, is one of the reasons why it's harder to do this with somebody who has come to a belief um, on the internet 
because it keeps getting reflected because we've all heard about the algorithms that were created originally for marketing to get you to buy stuff. But because of your searches um, and these algorithms amplify a certain point of view, is, is that part of what makes it very difficult to talk to people? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of why they believe what they believe as deeply as they believe it. There there is something called the mirror exposure effect, which says the more often you hear some fact, especially if you're hearing it from different sources, and especially if those are sources that you trust or you identify with, the more you hear it, the more you believe it. Now, this has become a real problem with social media because before social media, All of our information came from sources that did things like fact checking, sources that were worried about their reputation if they ended up putting something out there that turned out to be false. Uh, And so so ultimately, the information that we were getting tended to have these filters that made it mostly more accurate than not accurate. Social media has none of those filters to start with. Anybody can post anything. Um, And then secondly, it has this ability to magnify the exposure. Um, through the sharing, the, the sharing ability that, you know, with an old fashioned newspaper, I guess you could share your newspaper with somebody else, but you'd have one newspaper and it could only get around so far. Uh, but if you have enough friends on Facebook and you share something, uh, you know, that goes out widely and if they share it, it just magnifies. And so what that means is, yes, a person within some community hears a about some story from multiple sides. They keep hearing it over and over again from different people. And they, and they say, therefore, it must be true. Um, that's how our brain works. That's why politicians use talking points, you know, etc. because they're trying to make us come to it and like a view because we've heard it a lot. And so social media has really amped things up big time in this space. Well, one of the things that I had heard about cult deprogramming is that one of the first steps is to remove the subject from the cult environment. So you separate <laughs> them from the philosophy yeah. and the reflection yeah. of that philosophy from other members. Yeah. True. Not so easy when it's the internet, um, and 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 not so easy when they've you know developed so deeply. I actually you know my my advice in a situation. I, I like to yes, we can think of cults. We can also think of something like Y two K. So Y two K was a situation where everybody thought everything bad was going to happen in the year 2000 um, because the computer systems weren't ready for that. Blah 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 blah. And the important thing is that date came and went, and nothing happened. And then all of these people that were worried suddenly stopped worrying. You know, all of the people who are buying into a lot of these conspiracy theories, there's all these fears of things that will happen if you get vaccinated or blah, 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 all of this stuff that's supposedly going to happen and it's not happening. And I think the best thing that all of us can do, and it's certainly the advice I'm following as is, is, is difficult as it is with my sister, is I'm just not talking to her. We, we just cannot agree to disagree. We cannot uh, apparently talk about things other than this. We've tried. Um, and so I just, my opinion is it's best not to have those discussions if that's where it's going to go. Let's let time pass. And as more and more of these worries do not come to pass, my hope is we can just allow it to fade. Uh, what we don't want to do are victory laps. We, we don't want to say to these people, ah, you said it was going to whatever and it's not, so you're an idiot, blah, blah, blah. You know, we don't want to do any of that. In fact, I think we just want to act like this talk, this thing doesn't exist and move forward and hope that by not giving it any attention, not giving it any oxygen, that it will just sort of gracefully dissipate. Okay, I'll try my best to keep that in mind. <laughs> It's difficult. It's It's, really difficult. It's really tough. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for your time and your expert advice on this. All right, Sean. Have a great day. You too. Steve Jordans is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.